are more than a billion Roman Catholics in the world today. Given the long history of the church, for much of modern history, they have been the arbiters who oversaw burial of the dead. Here in the United States, they remained a relatively small sect, religiously speaking, for a long time. If you listen to the podcast for a while, you know that the history of burial in the United States is largely the history of Protestants. But the Roman Catholics do represent a large percentage of American cemeteries, dating back to as early as the 1630s. Their cemeteries are seen as a core tenant of their faith. However, they also don't distinguish themselves in many ways. As such a large part of the landscape, Catholic cemeteries are an interesting anomaly in the fact that they really don't tell the story of cemeteries as much as the story of their faith. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb of the View. So I'm going to apologize up front <laughs> if I make a couple of cracks. Uh, I was raised Catholic, went to Catholic school, know a great deal about the Catholic Church. I am going to try to be as neutral as possible as I am telling this story. But the Catholic Church certainly doesn't do itself any favors. I will also say that... I'm going to be honest, I really don't love Catholic cemeteries. I think that they are bland. There's a lot of identical markers. There's not a lot of distinguishing features, with the exception of a handful of cemeteries that I've been to that are owned by Roman Catholic dioceses or parishes. What they do well is volume. A large portion of the immigrant population, which migrates to the United States, in the post-Civil War period. So from about 1870 through 1930, a large portion of the immigrant population is going to be Roman Catholic. So the population booms that happen through immigration also unfortunately result in a lot of deaths, particularly from disease in inner cities. As a result, you have a ton of Catholic cemeteries. While you will often see Catholic cemeteries located right next to rural cemeteries, it's night and day. Many of the features of the landscape and things like that just don't carry over. I would say that Catholic cemeteries are kind of pale imitators of their neighbors, of their mainstream Protestant influences. They never quite achieve that level of grandeur. Now, that's not to say that there aren't some standout examples, and I'm going to be talking about a couple of them today. Let's take a step back for a second and talk a little bit about Catholics and death. So, Burial of the Dead is one of what is known as the Corporal Works of Mercy. If you are not up on your Corporal Works of Mercy, that's quite fine. These are essentially the orders that are given to emulate the work of Christ. So these are things that you probably have heard about. The teachings of Christ discuss them. These are things like feeding the hungry giving drinks to the thirsty, shelter to the homeless, visitation of the sick, alms for the poor, and lastly, burial of the dead. If you remember your Bible story, Christ dies on the cross, he is taken down, and he is actually laid in the tomb of a stranger, Joseph of Arimathea, where his remains stay for three days until the resurrection. Interestingly, 
Jesus is not actually buried. He's entombed. See, and that Joseph of Arimathea is seen as this great man for his willingness to follow the lead of Christ and to bury even a stranger in his tomb. Here in the United States, we do have Roman Catholic settlers almost from the outset. They often represent very small minorities in a lot of settlements. The only one of the colonies, if you remember your history of the 13 colonies, that is founded with complete religious freedom up front and has a large Catholic population is Maryland. So that is really where our story starts. And it's interesting, as I was doing the research for this, I took a step back and tried to think, where would there have been early Catholic populations? Originally, I thought about the missions. The missions, which are primarily run by the Franciscans, a religious order within the Catholic Church, pop up in places like Florida, in California. But when I start looking at the dates, the mission cemeteries actually all fall later than I originally thought. So I was thinking about places like St. Augustine. Tolomato Cemetery in St. Augustine, we know that it was taken over by the British in 1763. The cemetery obviously predates that, but it's not clear exactly how long it was there. It served the Franciscans who established the mission in St. Augustine in Florida, as well as natives who they had converted to Christianity. There's not really a good timeline. Even in California, the oldest of the Franciscan missions in California is at San Luis Obispo. It's founded in 1722. So easily the Maryland colonies predate that. And the earliest of these is St. Mary's City. This was the capital of Maryland prior to Annapolis. So from 1634 to 1695, this was the capital of the colony of Maryland. Lord Baltimore founds Maryland, and one of the reasons that they founded Maryland was as a place of religious freedom. This is the only one that is primarily Catholic religious freedom. Going back even further, you'll remember that there was a great schism within the Catholic and Protestant traditions in England. And all of this is dating to the century prior to the settlement. Catholics had a very hard time of it, in England in particular. As America is founded as an English colony, those who were Catholics had a real vested interest in getting out, the same way that the Puritans had. St. Mary's City is fascinating for a couple of reasons. Not only is it the fourth oldest English settlement, it is the birthplace of religious freedom and a haven for Catholics, and it is part of the major settlement of what will become the Chesapeake Bay. It is the most intact 17th century English town that survives in the nation, according to the National Park Service. It's represented entirely by archaeological resources. There are things on the surface that postdate it significantly, if you look at photos of this site. I think it's significance to archaeology is really underlined by the fact of how long it has been an archaeological site. So there have been digs going on there going back to the 1930s um, when a man named H. Shandley Foreman started doing digs. He did digs from 1933 to 1962 on the site, discovered quite a bit and really put it on the map. So what they did was they started to run an archaeological field school there in 1971. Also some great photos that you could see of this. If you want to see some very hunky men wearing bell bottoms and not much else with beautiful beards, Highly recommend checking out their website. This field school is really significant, so much so that it's actually highlighted in Shireen Bauer and Richard Viet's book, The Archaeology of American Cemeteries and Grave Markers, where they talk about the significance of this site. And it's because since 1971, there have been over 200 archaeological digs there. They have excavated the original cemetery. They have learned a great deal about what these folks died of, the diseases they suffered from, some of their innate problems. 
if you recently listened to the episode that I did about vampires. So similar to the work that they were doing when they did the exhumations there, similar things were going on in these field schools where they were using this data to understand the early settlers. In hindsight, later I have done many episodes about a lot of the early burial grounds, particularly at the Plymouth Colony. We have virtually none of those bones. So this is really significant because this site is intact. Unlike a lot of the cemeteries and other places from this early period, we still have the archaeological record largely intact. And as a result, Catholic or not, it is significant to the archaeological record of the United States outside of its significance as a religious center for Catholicism in America. Moving beyond this, it takes a while for a lot of the Catholic dioceses to get rolling when it comes to cemeteries. It's really not until you have the large Irish migration, which starts to happen in conjunction with the potato famine in the 1840s. There are dioceses that predate this, There are large groups of Catholics that predate this, but really heavily, you start to see the birth of Catholic cemeteries in the 1840s. So right around the same time that you start to see a boom in rural cemeteries. They also tend to be placed outside. Pause for a second to talk a little bit about the Catholic Church and the way it's organized. First, individual parishes or individual churches sometimes do have cemeteries. It's estimated that there are about 6,000 parish cemeteries still existing in the United States today. However, the overwhelming majority of cemeteries owned by the Catholic Church are diocesan or archdiocesan. A diocese is an organizational group of parishes, so a group of individual churches, generally in a specific geographic region, which is ruled over by a bishop. Now, Technically, the highest role in the Catholic Church is bishop. Even the Pope is the Bishop of Rome. However, depending on the size of the area controlled, there is also an archdiocese. So the larger the area, you move up into the archdiocese range. And I'm massively simplifying it, but this is really just so you understand when we talk about diocesan or archdiocesan cemeteries, what I am referring to is a cemetery that is owned by this basic region of the Catholic Church. And it serves the entire region as opposed to just one individual church. If you're curious, there are 194 dioceses today in the United States. It's estimated that 130 to 140 of those maintain cemeteries. And the reason for this is that some of the Dioceses are either too small or too remote to need a cemetery, and they may share them with neighboring areas. Also, depending on the region, some places focus much more heavily on municipal cemeteries and they don't have independent Catholic cemeteries. For example, here in Atlanta, we do not have a single Catholic cemetery. Nowhere. Nowhere here in Atlanta. If you are a Catholic and you want to be buried in a Catholic cemetery, you're going to have to drive really far. All the way out I-20. So you're talking probably two hours from the city to get to the closest Catholic cemetery. As opposed to other major cities like New York, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, where there may be more than a dozen Catholic cemeteries in the metro area. So it really does depend. This organizational system, too, it has some issues. It's estimated that the peak Catholic population of the United States peaked around the late 1960s, like 1967 to 1969. That's when a lot of these saw the most action. 
So often in these major metro areas during the baby boom, they built a ton of cemeteries because they were getting wave after wave after wave. As people age and are living longer, as infant mortality, as vaccination has grown, like with other cemeteries, Catholics have definitely dialed back on this. When I talk about the planning of these cemeteries, they are largely need-based. For example, let's take a little of a, a little side journey over to talk about not just the largest Catholic cemetery in the United States, but the largest cemetery period in the United States. And what I'm referring to here is Calvary Cemetery. I guarantee that most of you have seen Calvary Cemetery at one time or another. It's 365 acres, contains 71 sections, spread out over four separate cemeteries in the Maspeth, um, Woodside, Long Island City portion of Queens. It, when I say it's massive, it really is. Um, when I visited, I saw just two of the four sections. The four sections are each named for four of the original catacombs. Now, I said I wouldn't get too much into early Christian burial, but undoubtedly at some point in the past, you have heard discussion of early Christians having to go underground to hide their religion and practicing their religion in the catacombs. The catacombs were the burial place outside of Rome on the Appian Way. They went underground and they literally practiced mass in the tombs alongside the martyrs who had died for the church when Christianity was outlawed. So these catacombs have a great deal of significance to the church. They are named for martyrs. Old Calvary Cemetery or First Calvary Cemetery is named for St. Calixtus. Second Calvary Cemetery is named for St. Agnes. Third Calvary Cemetery is named for St. Sebastian. And fourth is named for St. Domatella. Early Christian martyrs, all of them, and also the names of the catacombs outside of Rome. Odds are, if you have seen Calvary Cemetery, you have seen Old or First Calvary, the St. Calixtus portion. This is the first established. It is bypassed by the Brooklyn Queens Expressway. So if you've been on the BQE traveling through Queens and you pass through this enormous cemetery that stretches out on both sides of the highway, what you are looking at is Calvary Cemetery. This is also where the chapel is. So even if you have attended a funeral where someone is buried in second, third, or fourth Calvary, the chapel where the funeral services are held is in St. Calixtus in Old or First Calvary. This actually replaced an earlier one. So originally when the cemetery was formed, there was a wooden chapel. It was later replaced by the existing stone chapel in 1908. Now I've never been inside this chapel. But I read a description somewhere that said it was the most magnificent chapel of any cemetery in the United States. I don't know how I feel about that. It's a weird looking chapel. It's got a giant Romanesque arch and the top of it kind of looks like a beehive with Jesus on top of it. I am not a huge fan. And even when I saw it in person, I didn't find it particularly striking, but it's there and apparently some people like it. They do hold mass there. So if you're curious, you want to take a peek inside, they do hold mass there weekly. Calvary, what, what can I say about it? Well, first, let's, let's go back to the origins because I did find the newspaper article announcing it. So Calvary was established, like many cemeteries, when they had filled up their cemetery in Manhattan. The trustees of St. Patrick's Cathedral, and this is old St. Patrick's, probably not the one you think about, the old St. Patrick's, which is still there. They had an existing cemetery in New York City. It was on Mulberry Street, and it had almost filled up by 1817. They knew that, they, that their days were numbered there. And then the last straw was a massive cholera epidemic in 1847. 
And at this point, things had reached critical mass. They had to find a new spot. This, if you remember going back and talking about the Rural Cemeteries Act, which I've talked about in other episodes, was very nice because it coincided with the Rural Cemetery Act. So they were actually one of the first to move outside the city. So the trustees of St. Patrick's Cathedral purchased about 71 acres from two individuals, John McEnmoy and John McNulty. Then as they saw kind of the fervor for this, they decided to make a second purchase for a woman named Ann Alsop, who had 115 acres on her family farm. The other thing that's interesting about the Alsops is that they had a family cemetery on the property, which is still there and has been completely encompassed by Calvary. And it was in the agreement that was made that it continued to be fenced and maintained by the Catholic Church. It's a small cemetery, about 30 graves, dating between 1718 and 1889. So there were some individuals who were buried there even after Calvary was founded. But it's very interesting, and I did see it when I was at Calvary. You can find this little kind of cemetery within a cemetery, which I think is neat. And actually is a model that's used in a lot of places. If you've ever been to Crestlawn here in Atlanta, Crestlawn has two family cemeteries within it. So this is the notice that was published in 1848. New Catholic Cemetery. Public notice is hereby given that the ground lately purchased in the vicinity of Williamsburg by the trustees of St. Patrick's Cathedral for a Catholic burial ground and to be called Calvary Cemetery has been enclosed by a high and strong fence. And a large portion of the enclosure was solemnly consecrated by the Right Reverend Bishop Hughes on Thursday last. The enclosure contains about 30 acres, and with improvements which are intended, a more appropriate burying ground could not be found in the entire neighborhood of New York. In consequent, the cemetery in 11th Street being now filled, notice is hereby further given that no internments can take place on the said ground after Wednesday the 2nd. Notice is also hereby further given that no internments can hereafter take place in the free vault at 50th Street between 4th and 5th Avenues, in consequence of the same now being filled. A new place for free internments has been provided in Calvary Cemetery before mentioned. Applications for internments are to be made as usual to Mr. James Hart, Sexton of the Cathedral in Mulberry Street. By order of the Board of Trustees, New York, August 1st, 1848. What is interesting is that if you look at the newspapers, this really, other than this notice, is not picked up. And it kind of gives you an idea that the Catholics are existing on the fringes even at that point. Within a couple of days, so August of 1848, the Bishop John Hughes does consecrate it. The first burial had actually taken place on July 31st before the consecration. A woman named Esther Ennis, who supposedly died of a broken heart. Just two days after this notice on August 3rd, 1848, the newspaper does note that a permit was granted to remove the burials from the cemetery in Manhattan across the river to Queens. So there is no existing Catholic cemetery that remains in Manhattan. The burials were removed from there. They were all moved to Calvary. I'm sure they did a great job doing that um, because we know that they always do, right? Boy, does it start to go like gangbusters. So by 1852, just four years later, they were handling 50 burials a day. They were mostly poor Irish under the age of seven. You were talking about immigration. You were talking about people living in crowded tenement conditions. Cholera is rampant. Consumption is rampant. Most children do not live to see their 10th birthday. 
in the first 50 years of the cemetery's existence, there are 644,761 burials. Between 1898 and 1907, there are another 200,000. So how are they getting there? Well, it was accessed by ferry. The original ferry was on 23rd Street in Manhattan. By 1854, a second ferry had opened up from 10th Street. Essentially, as the population grows and migrates, there are multiple access points. I wasn't able to find the actual fare, but I did find the fare for reaching Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, which was 12 and a half cents. So that kind of gives you an idea. I'm assuming it's probably around the same amount. Graves were sold $7 for an adult, $5 for a child aged 7 to 14, $3 for a child under 7. As you're probably aware, many poor immigrants couldn't even afford these. So as popular as this is, this also explains Heart Island because a lot of these individuals, if you could not afford to pay that for whatever reason, would end up in the potter's field on Heart Island. Why are you probably most familiar with Calvary? First of all, let's stop and talk about Calvary in general. Calvary is the hill where Christ was crucified. I once heard somebody say, why is every Catholic cemetery called Calvary? That exactly explains why. Because through Christ's death and resurrection, Catholics are promised eternal life, the idea that in sorrow, in death, those who have died are laying there waiting for the promise of the resurrection. Very common. It's interesting, though, to see how cemeteries rebrand. The cemetery in Madison, Wisconsin, for example, was originally called Calvary Cemetery. Now it's called Resurrection Cemetery. The Catholic Church knows a thing or two about rebranding. The reason that you are probably familiar with Calvary Cemetery is if you have seen the 1972 cinematic masterpiece, The Godfather. Vito Corleone, the titular Godfather, is buried, quote-unquote, at Calvary Cemetery. You will see a good deal of the cemetery in that funeral scene. If you haven't seen it in a while, it's worth pulling up because you get a really good idea of what it looks like. So it starts with them driving through the gates of the St. Calixtus, the old first Calvary section. They drive through the gate. You can see kind of the gatehouse next to it. They wind through the graves and they wind along a row of mausoleums. You can see the Johnson Mausoleum, which is the largest in the cemetery. It's kind of the iconic view of the cemetery that you see. And they pull up to the obviously fake Corleone Monument. The Corleone Monument was just a prop for the film. Really grand. You have this parade of cars with $20,000 worth of flowers. The other interesting thing is you can also see, even with a film that was made roughly 50 years ago, how much pollution has continued to get bad in terms of looking at how clean some of the stones are. I thought that was really interesting in rewatching it. Also, one of the interesting things I found was that the following scene in the film, the baptism scene, was actually shot, the interior shots were shot at Old St. Patrick's. So you can see the interior of Old St. Patrick's if you've ever been curious about what the original church looked like. That is actually where the baptism scene takes place. The exterior shots are not. The exterior shots were taken at the Church of St. Anne and St. Joachim on Staten Island, which sadly burned the year after the movie was made. Something new that I found for this podcast. They did rebuild, so that church is still there now, but the exterior as it existed in the 1972 film does not exist anymore. So that's the largest in the United States. What about the others? Because obviously there are others. This is where I find that the Catholic Church, it's kind of fascinating because I looked at quite a few diocese websites. If you search 
the major Catholic publications in America, there is not a whole lot on cemeteries in their, you know, Catholic newspapers. I will say that they are vehemently coming out against certain things like human composting. There's a lot of articles recently about the Catholic Church and them opposing human composting. In general, cemeteries just seem like this very utilitarian thing. There is very little effort to pretty them up, to tell a compelling story, to tap into cemetery tourism. And granted, that could be because they are seen as some sort of sacred undertaking and that they shouldn't be exploited in that way. But cynically, I think that the Catholic Church is struggling just as much as many other cemeteries of different kinds. So as I already mentioned, there are quite a few, 130 to 140 dioceses manage cemeteries. The most recent article I was able to find about cemetery management in Catholic cemeteries was from 2010. So I, you will bear with me if some of these numbers are slightly out of date. So this article outlined a couple of different dioceses. The first was uh, really interesting, a man named Joseph Sankovic, who was the former director of the Archdiocese of Seattle Cemeteries, which I can imagine he wasn't terribly busy because Seattle has one of the highest cremation rates in the country. Regardless, he is now a consultant for other diocese cemetery programs. And he recommended an eight-step process to focus on. So the first is on management. The second is on pastoral and public relations. So working with churches as well as the general public. The third is to focus on operations and maintenance. That's good. You got to keep the grass mown. The fourth is inventory and development. How are we going to maximize space and make some money? Five, office operations, running the day-to-day -day paperwork side of things. Six is to focus on human resources and personnel. Seven, sales, sales, sales. Got to make those sales. Eight is to focus on accounting and finance, which is a pretty good model for just about any business. So let's talk numbers. So two of the um, archdioceses that gave their information, the first is from John Sherrick who is the director of cemeteries for the Archdiocese of Minneapolis-St. Paul. The Archdiocese there runs five cemeteries, which have existing over a quarter of a million burials. They handle between 1,200 and 1,300 a year. Like I said, these are 2010 numbers, so bear with me. And operated under a roughly $5 million budget with a staff of 25 running them. From what I know about other cemeteries, these numbers check out. They're basically running their cemeteries very similar to people who are working in private or municipal cemeteries. In Minneapolis-St. Paul, there is a corporation that is separate from the core of the diocese, but it is run by a board that is appointed by the archbishop. They do not run the 110 parish cemeteries, which are also located within the archdiocese. Those are the responsibility of the individual parishes. This idea of separating out cemeteries is a very big trend. You may or may not have heard that the Catholic Church is having some money problems for a variety of reasons. But the idea is that by separating cemeteries out, this allows the perpetual care funds that they have collected and often are required to collect by law remain safe from greedy bishops dipping their finger in to use that money for other things, like, say, sex abuse scandal lawsuits. Switching over... Andrew Schaefer, who is the director for the Archdiocese of Newark, New Jersey, had 10 archdiocesan cemeteries, and there the archdiocese had taken over parish cemeteries. I know that this is the case in a couple of places. Pittsburgh also has used this model. They have 1 million plus burials, 
and roughly 7,000 annual internments with 168 employees did not give an operating budget. So just giving you an idea that often these are large operations. We are talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of acres. But I wanna wrap up this discussion by talking about the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. This is a big one because in 2013, the Archdiocese of Philadelphia essentially pimped out their cemeteries to pay their bills. That year, they entered into a 60-year management lease contract with a company called Stonemore, who is based out of Levittown, Pennsylvania. Stonemore is one of the largest cemetery operators in the United States. They have cemeteries in 27 states and Puerto Rico, a total of almost 300 cemeteries and 92 funeral homes. A big corporation very similar to Service Corporation International. Think along those lines. Very corporate, very structured. Now, the Archdiocese found itself basically $350 million in the hole. And the problem was is that they had a lot of lay people who worked for them. So think people who work in Catholic schools, cafeteria workers, all kinds of people who had pensions that they were counting on. And the Archdiocese had to dip into the pension fund. So for both priests and lay people, the pension fund was completely depleted. So the Archdiocese laid off 50 people. That saved them some money. They also did a couple of things. They sold Overbrook, which was the enormous mansion right on the main line where the archbishop uh, lived. They also sold a summer retreat in New Jersey that was used by priests. So they unloaded some real estate, but undoubtedly the biggest thing that they did was to settle this lease for $53 million up front. So for the right to manage the cemeteries for the next 60 years, Stonemore hands over an initial $53 million, wrote the archdiocese a check right up front they would pay an additional 36 million over the 30 year period. So for the first five years while they were getting their feet wet, which obviously that time period is now passed, they would pay nothing. Starting at year six, they would pay a million dollars a year annually through year 20. And then from year 20, 25 to 35, they would pay 1.5 million a year. And then by the time they hit year 36, they would not be paying anything. This is fascinating. And I read a lot of the legal agreements about this. There's a couple of things that are troubling. So first of all, people were very concerned about the fact that who owns the cemeteries? Is it Stonemore or is the Archdiocese? The Archdiocese retains control over the used cemetery land where there are actual burials. The undeveloped land, which there is hundreds of acres of undeveloped land in their cemeteries, they do not own, not technically. They are majority owners, but it is a split partnership with Stonemore. So should Stonemore need money, they can sell off unused land in the cemetery for basically a 51-49 split. So if they choose to sell off 100 acres of land for millions and millions and millions of dollars to supplement their operating costs, they can do so. And the archdiocese takes the majority share of the money, but they still keep 49% of the cut, which is a pretty good deal. And this concerned a lot of people. But as of 2017, the courts in Pennsylvania held it up. They also made an agreement that the perpetual care funds, which there was $30 million in existing perpetual care funds, is in the hands of the archdiocese. Stonemore has to not only uphold the perpetual care, they have to maintain the cemeteries. They also are responsible for setting up a new perpetual care fund for any future lot sales. What happened to that $30 million is a really great question because that's also a lot of money. 
But I think it's an interesting trend to see because you have to wonder if this type of activity will continue to happen. Certainly lots of private cemeteries have taken the same deal, selling out to companies like Stonemore and Service Corporation International. Will it continue to happen? Will more archdioceses decide that their cemeteries are a great thing to leverage? I think it's definitely something to watch. So I feel a little guilty particularly because I feel like I have not given a great visual representation of what Catholic cemeteries look like. But there's a reason for that. I even went through all of my cemetery books and I tried to see really concrete descriptions, physical descriptions of what they look like. And I was very disappointed because a lot of them come to the same conclusion that I have that volume is really the name of the game. So, for example, if you read Silent Cities, The Evolution of American Cemeteries by Kenneth T. Jackson, he describes Catholic cemeteries talking about a visual stasis, row upon row upon row upon row of headstones. Again, it's all about volume. But I will make a blanket statement here and say that Catholic cemeteries are not without impressive statuary. The thing is, you are going to see a lot of very similar statuary. So, there are the big players. The Virgin Mary, St. Joseph, and the Holy Family as a group. That's not to say that you won't see other individuals. One that comes to mind is St. Anthony appears occasionally. You will see St. Patrick occasionally. A lot of it has to do with the ethnic representation of a particular sect of Catholicism. We all know St. Patrick is associated very closely with the Irish. St. Joseph, likewise, is very closely associated with Italians. This is also probably a good time to bring up that that association also goes along with careers. So you have mass Italian immigration that occurs in the late 19th, early 20th century. Many of these are actual stonecutters from places like Carrara in Italy. And so as a result, they take their skill set with them. And you can see a lot of these sculptures in cemeteries across the United States, but perhaps nowhere more so than in Catholic cemeteries. For the most part, a lot of them have a very mass-produced feel to them. I have been in very few Catholic cemeteries where... Particular headstones stand out to me on a really high level. That's not to say that they're not as good as rural cemeteries. I think that they were just a lot more bound by traditional art that they felt was appropriate for cemeteries. Again, though, you do see variation depending on the ethnic association of any particular group. One of the biggest questions I do get asked has to do with cremation, of course. This is something I think that is pretty heavily misunderstood. So I can't really talk about Catholic cemeteries without addressing it. You know, does the Catholic Church still have something against cremation? You might be surprised for how long they have been okay with it. A lot of people think this is a relatively recent change, but really the moratorium on cremation was lifted in 1963. In May of 1963, the Vatican's Holy Office, which is now the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, lifted the prohibition on cremation. And they saw this as keeping up with the times. Now, if you know about the rise of cremation, the 70s is really when it starts in the United States. So I think this is why not a lot of people knew about it. First of all, because it was done very quietly. Second of all, it was just a statement that was made by the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith. It wouldn't become incorporated into canon law. 
as Canon 1176 until 1983. At that time, it was integrated into the rite of the order of Christian funerals. So that big book that you see, if you have ever been to a Catholic funeral mass, they incorporated part of it for a body that is going to be cremated. This is an important distinction to make. The preference is, is that there be a corporeal presence at the funeral so that the deceased be there, their body can be blessed, they be physically present in the church of the funeral, and the cremation happens after. It is not until 1997 that they changed the order of the rites for funerals to allow for cremated remains, so pre-cremated remains. It is still not the preference. When you talk about cremated remains, you are not getting scattered at the Grand Canyon. You're not getting scattered at the beach. If you are cremated as a Catholic, you still must be inurned or entombed or buried. So it still requires a final resting place. You cannot be taken home and put on a mantle. You cannot be put in a necklace. Can't be kept in a cookie jar. You have to be placed in the ground, and that is the preference. The idea that your remains still must be together, they must be in hollowed ground, they must be protected, they are fine with columbaria and things like that, but you are not scattering cremated remains. They approve of cremation only as speeding up of the natural decomposition process that would happen. As the rise in cremation increases, I think that the Catholic Church knew that they, they didn't really have a choice, that they had to kind of shift, particularly because there are a lot of countries where this rise happens before the United States. So they were already feeling the pressure. And I saw that um, Talk Death Daily has had an article talking about the relative cheapness of cremation and the response to that and asking about it. And I had somebody reach out after reading that article and talk to me about it. And I said that, like, here in the United States, I don't think that there is a huge cost differential, but it definitely is cheaper in the long run, which is why a lot of cities are opting to cremate their indigent dead as opposed to full body burial like we do here in Georgia. I think that the Catholic Church also had to keep up with the times. Now, that being said, I already mentioned this earlier, they are vehemently against human composting. And I read a couple of quotes um, from when California passed the law where they state it reduces the human body to a simple disposable commodity and says, quote, is appropriate for disposal of livestock, but not as a means of human burial. So the idea that you can get a loved one's remains and use it as compost to plant a tree is really worrying to the Catholic Church. They are cool with cremation, but are they really that cool? And it's interesting. I hadn't thought about this. So... My father, when he died, was cremated, but his body was present at the funeral mass. The same for my grandmother, who died last year. My grandfather, however, was cremated prior to his funeral. And I'm not really sure why he died in Florida, so maybe, <laughs> maybe in Florida you just grab a crematorium when one's available. But I don't recall any differences in the funeral mass. So it seems that... Even that, I think they have lifted the moratorium to a certain degree, and they are far more willing to work with families. But I will be curious to see how the Catholic Church comes out in the long run as aquamation, as human composting and things like that continue to rise. Because I think there will be a push, and I will be very curious to see what their response to that is. Will there be a section of Catholic cemeteries for the internment of this compost? What will happen then? I don't know. It's a really worthwhile question. It's something that I think is worth studying as time comes on. As always, if you are enjoying the show, 
Please rate and review. It does help make me much more searchable to people looking for quality cemetery content on whatever platform you might be listening on. Follow along on social media, Tomb with View podcast on both Facebook and Instagram. Share lots of exciting tidbits. The re-recording continues. I am working on some new content. I appreciate your patience as I've been trying to roll these out um, in addition to my very busy day job. Hopefully we're getting close to getting caught up now. But for now, have a wonderful week. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb of the View.